the fear of the living in fear of impending nuclear warfare. But as a matter of fact, believe it or not, plenty people don't care whether it's imminent or not. First one to attack or if the human race a go survive or not. For those some is aware, them life already coming like a nightmare. And you can see it everywhere, the famine and the fear, the doubt and the drought, desperation and despair. And you can see it all around, the massacres abound, dead bodies all around, the atrocities abound, missing persons can't be found, the theaters get the throne, new clowns are quickly found. The eagle and the beer of people living in fear of impending nuclear warfare. But as a matter of fact, believe it or not, plenty people don't care whether it's imminent or not. Or first going to attack or if the human race are survive or not. For those some is aware, them life already coming like a nightmare.
From England to Poland, every step across the ocean The ruling classes, them is in a mess Oh yes, the capitalist system are regress But the Soviet system now progress So which one of them you think is best? When are the two of them the workers are contest? When crisis is the order of the day? When so much people crying out for change nowadays? So what about the working class, comrade German? What about the working class? They bear the car, they carry the cross, and them now go forget them tongues in the dance. Them now go forget them tongues. From the east to the west, to the land I love the best. The ruling classes, them is in a mess. Oh yes, crisis is the order of the day. The workers, them demanding more pay every day. The peasants want a lot more say nowadays. The youth, them rebelling everywhere. Everywhere, insurrection is the order of the day. There's a lot of people crying out for change nowadays. Nobody blame it on the black working class, Mr. Racist. Blame it on the ruling class. Blame it on your capitalist boss. We pay the cost. We suffer the loss. And we're not going to get new cross, not a rust. We're not going to get new cross. Change nowadays. Nobody blame it on the black working class, Mr. Racist. Blame it on the ruling class. Blame it on your capitalist boss. We pay the cost. We suffer the loss. And we're now about to get new cross, not a rust. We're now about to get new cross.
And welcome to the weekly review. This is Roman. It's Friday, November 10th, 2017. We are recording live here at Mutiny Radio here in the Mission District in San Francisco. The sun is coming out now. It was raining before, and we're very grateful for the rain, for sure. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It's been quite a week. Oh, not even quite sure where to begin. Uh, we'll be getting to some news stories later today. Opened up the show with some great music from Linton Quasi Johnson. And the first song is De Eagle and De Bear, followed by What About the Working Class? And songs that were written and performed back in the early 80s are still very relevant, very present. And that's true with a lot of the music that's out there. It's I don't know if it's either... It's not upsetting to know that these things have been going on for a long time and that folks are still we're still fighting the same battles that have been going on for decades, centuries even. Um, it's reassuring in some way though to know that but we're still it's that we're not wrong in it, I guess, and that it's it's there's a standing on the shoulders of giants, I guess. I'm waking up a bit here and yeah, we'll be getting there's some elections that happened this week and there's some positive outcomes for folks. And I'm, I'm a believer that a lot of progress really comes from folks working outside the system. Although folks do work inside the system can make a difference. So I appreciate that too. So I am grateful that there are some folks who, who won elections and we'll be getting to that a little bit later in the show and talking about that. So that's good as well. I myself am, am waking up. I want to issue a trigger warning. This is a news and current events program. So we may be talking about some subject matters and topics that are difficult um, to hear about. So wanting to issue that out there. Uh, the show has is constantly talking about that as well as uh, recurring themes of the show are people in positions of power who harm others. And that seems to be the case with people in law enforcement, people in government a lot of the time. And how does everyone respond to that? How do we respond to that? And the positive side is that there are so many people doing a lot of great work. And before I did this show, I didn't really have an understanding of that. But there are so many folks beyond, you know, for social justice, environmental justice, so on and so forth, who it's their life duty to try to undo all the harm that some folks in power have done and are doing and continue to do and that the systems in place allow to happen. So I'm and just often grateful for so many of the people that I meet who are doing that work and it it definitely gives me some more hope knowing that there are people out there who are finding ways around and finding ways in and through to change the world that we're living in and to also help other folks evolve because I think that's what a lot of it is and when we see folks in positions of power who cause harm and say really horrific things really harmful things and uh, to know that um, then hopefully the next generation will not be about that and we'll be able to step up to them and have an understanding that a lot of these ideas are no longer, they were never useful in the first place, but now especially um, time to time to retire them. And I'm thinking in particular of the opponent who ran against Danica Rome who, in Virginia and she won and that's great news and a lot of um, other openly trans folks have won elections and that's fucking awesome and rad. And imagine, like, an all-trans government would be a government that I might actually even believe in. So, 
so there's that. And there's also another woman who ran against, uh, there was a guy who made some criticisms about the Women's March, and it wasn't about the lack of intersectionality of the Women's March. It was more just like this very like disgusting, misogynist remark about it. And this woman got fed up with it, and she ran, and she beat him. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of good things happening. So I also wanting to comment on that, that it's not all terrible, even though there's a lot of, it seems it's difficult to keep track of all the things that are happening, but we must also acknowledge the positive things that are happening. And we'll get to that later in the show. Coming up in a few minutes, I'm going to be speaking with Jason Hill. I'm very much looking forward to speaking with him. Uh, So Jason is the the trans right to health advocate at St. John's Well Child and Family Center in LA. And we'll be talking a bit about that. So very much looking forward to having Jason on the program. I'm waking up a little bit. Usually I rant for a little bit. Today was, uh, it was a rainy morning, so I didn't bike here. So I'm feeling a little bit still getting my juices flowing and waking up. Had some coffee. On Mondays, I've been sending in for uh, DJ Asik uh, for Heterotopia. So you can listen in to that show Mondays from 4 to 6 p.m. This past Monday, we played uh, a couple different podcasts, uh, interviews. There was one about the J20 defendants who are folks, oh, I'm going to get too upset. And it's only 12.14. These are the folks who some folks were protesting, some folks were journalists and photographers, and they were kettled, and um, they were, they're facing a lot of charges. Now we have a call, so we'll be getting into more of that later, so please do stay tuned. Hello. Hey, how are you? Oop. Hello. Hello? Oh, okay, that was my, my mistake. All right, um, we're gonna try that again. That was on me. We're gonna try that one more time and let, that, let the call come in. I've only been doing the show for a few years. You would think that by now I would get it. So we're going to try one more time for that. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is Mutiny Radio. You can listen in. We have shows here uh, every day of the week. All right. Let's see. Hello? Hello. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Can you hear me? Awesome. Yes. Wonderful. Yay. Sorry about that. That was my mistake. No, you're good. Uh, Thank you so much for calling in. It's really good to hear your voice. You too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I've been, um, so we met like years ago in New York and it's been awesome to see what you've been up to in in LA since moving out here. Thank you. Yeah. I feel like you actually were one of the first trans people that like I ever met. Like, way, way, way back when. You probably don't remember this, but I remember seeing you, like, on the subway platform, like, like with a bicycle, like, hella long ago. Oh, and wow. And I was like, oh, I want to talk to that person. And this was before I actually, like, met you officially. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It, it seems like a lifetime ago. Yeah. Definitely. Aww. <laughs> but yeah, so talk to me. Like, how how can I uh, how can I help or how can I support? 
Oh, was, I'm just really curious to hear about the, the advocacy work that you've been doing um, down in Los Angeles. And I always feel like we find out, it's like for the trans community, we always find out a lot of things through word of mouth more than anything else. So I was just curious uh-huh. to hear about the kind of the work that you've been doing down there. And yeah, anything you'd really like to talk about with the organization that you're working for or, or anything at all? So uh, I work for St. John's Well Child and Family Center, and about three years ago, we started a program specifically called the Transgender Health Program. Mm -hmm. So St. John's as a whole has 15 clinics, and the trans clinic is only one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, our CEO, uh, with the help of Karina Samala, created this program to really serve the specific needs of the trans community. And now we have over 2,000 patients. Wow. Um, We provide more than just medical services. So, A, we provide hormones Mm -hmm. uh, with informed consent, the informed consent model. So, like, we don't need you to, like, go to a therapist or, like, do all this other stuff. If you say you're trans, you're trans, and that's that. Yeah. Take your blood work and make sure you're okay. (laughs) Oh, nice. You know? Oh. (laughs) So you can get hormones there. We also have a program where we help people find employment mm. and connect them back to school. We uh, we have a relationship with the community college, LA Trade Tech, directly mm. across the street. Mm-hmm. So we support people with that. We also help people with victim advocacy. So if they you know have been in any kind of you know intimate partner violence situation, or they're dealing with harassment from their landlords or anything like that, we have a victim advocate that helps with that. And then we also have a support group for trans women of color who are high risk for HIV mm-hmm. or who are currently living with HIV. And uh, basically all the people in that program who run that program are trans women of color. And they support the girls through, you know, coping mechanisms and just kind of like really living while trans because that's traumatic enough as it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then what I do specifically is I help people with name and gender change. Mm-hmm. So their legal name and gender change in California. California, and then on top of that, I work to push policies forward that will positively impact the trans community. That's great. That's that. All those things sound really incredible and awesome, and I'm so grateful that these are that these things are happening. Yeah, I love my job. It's like it's so awesome and so unreal. Like every day, I'm just like, do I really do this? Like this is my job. This is crazy. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. I mean, it's just so interesting to see like how much things have changed in the past decade alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm also just yeah. I mean, yeah, things you know, things have definitely changed a lot, especially you know with policies. You know, we have, like, a lot of really awesome legislation that just got passed or signed by the governor on October 15th. Mm -hmm. One of them that I'm, like, really obsessed with is the Gender Recognition Act. Okay. And uh, we really, we worked with Equality California to help pass that. We went up to Sacramento. We talked to legislators about why they need to vote yes on that bill specifically uh, during the L.A. Pride because we knew we would have a lot of people coming from out of town. We like basically had these postcards that we gave out to like everyone who was there that just said, I support SB 179, had them put their name, their address, and zip code. And then uh, people from Equality California delivered them to the legislators that were in that zip code, mm-hmm. specifically like when it was time for them to vote. Um, what I want to say, which is super cool about that experience, is we had a lot of cis gay allies. Hmm. 
Wow. Like a lot of the cis gay folks were like, yeah, you know, my brother is trans or, you know, my friend is non-binary or something, something along those lines. They were like, yeah, I definitely support that. Oh, so awesome. I feel like I just want to put that out there, which is, you know, which was really a shock to me. Yeah. To be with you. <laughs> Um, but we, we have a lot more allies than, than I thought before that experience. That's great. And do you mind talking a little bit more about that bill for folks who might not be familiar with it? Oh, for sure. Okay, so um, so the first part of that bill, which is super cool, is that people who identify as non-binary mm-hmm. will now have a gender marker on the California DMV uh, IDs and also on your birth certificate starting with, in January 2019. Yeah. So like yeah so that's like one of the most awesome things just in general yeah Um, and i think what i'm excited about like a it's like justice for non-binary people yes but also i think that in itself is like great for like folks who are born intersex yes Um, yes just just so there isn't like that you know those practices of corrective surgery Mm -hmm. and all that stuff that like doctors just do sometimes without even telling parents right it's actually like mutilation yeah so that's, that's the first thing. Uh, number two, starting in January 2019, you will no longer need an affidavit from a psychologist or a physician to verify that you're trans. Oh, so wow. The like current law basically says that a doctor, somebody with an MD or a DO, or a PhD, a clinical psychologist, has to like sign off and just be like, oh, I verify that Jason is trans because like I have all these like things behind my name. Right? And, like, we all know that nobody can verify whether you're trans. And also, you don't even know. Sometimes people don't want to medically transition. Right. Or they don't have the means or ability to medically transition. Yeah. You know, maybe it's easier in San Francisco or Los Angeles, but, like, you know, in other places in the state, it's really not that accessible for people. So you won't need to do that anymore. You can just write your own personal affidavit. That's great. And then there's also justice for minors. So, like, you know, sometimes you have one parent, like, your mom's really cool, your dad's an asshole, mm-hmm. or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So now, if you're a minor under 18, you only need one consenting parent. That's awesome. In order to legally transition. So what happens if you're raised by a single parent, then? Do you need... Do you, this, yeah, bef- then, unfortunately, it does need to be that. Parent. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's what does kind of suck. Okay, okay. Well, I'm glad that it's, like, only just one one parent now, then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So that, and that is, um, and there's, you know, there's other, there's kind of, like, other ways to, like, work around that law. So, like, let's say, you know, you don't have, like, you know, both of your biological parents are deceased, then, you know, if you have, like, another legal guardian, they would be able to sign off on that for you. Mm-hmm. So, but there's, you just kind of, you kind of have to, like, work around the law a little bit, but that option is available. Hmm. Cool. Nice. Wow. Oh, did I lose you? Oh, no, I'm here. I'm here. I'm actually going to just try one thing with the phone really quick. So let's see if this still... Hello? Shoot. Hello? Oh, good. You're still here. Great. Okay, excellent. (laughs) Yeah, where it's kind of a DIY situation here. So there's technical stuff. Anyway, that's aside from the point. Okay, cool. So there's a lot of good good stuff happening that you're involved with. And it seems like you have like a lot of support at the organization that you work at. Yeah, the organization is incredible. So the trans team itself is 
staffed by all trans people. Mm -hmm. So that's really empowering. Um, And they're all trans people of color. So it's really awesome, like, just to be around, you know, people who are like me, who understand my narrative and who support me. And, you know, honestly, really, for me to be able to support them, just like, let's be real, I'm transmasculine, I'm super cis-passing, mm-hmm. so I'm hella privileged mm-hmm. uh, in that way. Yeah. Even being a person of color, just being able to, like, be cis-passing and just, like, not have to deal with just, like, stress yeah. just walking down the street is yeah. just, like, a huge privilege. So, you know, I work with uh, trans femmes who don't really have that luxury, yeah. so it's really cool to be able to, like, support them and just, like, you know, empower them, Right. you know. Yeah, I think, I think that's so important for trans masculine folks to be able to, to show up for, for trans feminine people. Like it's so, it's not, maybe it's not talked about too much, but I feel like it's kind of, we really need to do that. So I'm glad to hear that it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, we really do. It's a it's, whole, uh, you know, most of our patients, uh, St. John's are low income, uh, trans women of color. Mm-hmm. So to be completely transparent, before I started my job, I didn't realize how bad it was yeah. to be living as a trans woman of color. Yeah. I, I really didn't. You know, I didn't have the personal experience. I was one of those trans guys. I had all my trans masculine friends and mm-hmm. my homies. And I didn't really get it. And then once I saw just, you know, I mean, we have some girls that would just, it's just such... Uh, a challenge just to even show up for their appointments. Oh, they're yeah. Just like, they're on public transportation, so the minute they leave the house, they either harass us by somebody on the way to the bus, yeah. you know, or somebody will be like, yo, that's a man, or somebody will throw something at them, or mm-hmm. spit at them, mm-hmm. or just any kind of this craziness that goes on just from the point of leaving their house right. to showing up for their apartment appointment just to get hormones. Right, just right. Just to leave themselves. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I, if, I think if folks only knew that, and I'm glad that you, you mentioned that, because I think some folks have no idea, unless you interact with folks, you don't, you don't know what other people go through. And even then, it's still, you know, one can witness it or hear about it, but still, one doesn't necessarily experience it firsthand. Exactly. So. Yeah, it's, oh. it's really bad, you yeah. know, like, it just, uh you know, I talk about it, and I feel like I'm on the verge of tears, and it's just like, you know, I don't even deal with it, you know? Like, I see it, and people I care about yeah. are experiencing it, so I can only imagine how much worse it is yeah. if I was experiencing it firsthand, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just so much rage. I mean, that's like the emotion that comes up, and just, oh, it's, oh, it's, ah! Yeah, I don't even have the words for it, really. Just, I like, I feel it in my body, like, that kind of, like, that kind of response. Exactly. Oh. <sighs> yeah. What's, what's your experience been like? Just you know, in general, like your experience of transitioning and you know being a non-binary person. I'm just kind of curious, like you know, the difference in uh, in that experience in New York versus the Bay, and just what it's like. Oh, sure. I mean, it's. I guess it's changed over time because I've become more secure with myself, and then there's also how people view me. So there were the years when. I wasn't passing and that was tumultuous for sure. And then now for the most part, you know, I'm viewed, you know, I'm viewed as like cis passing. I know like, and I also just want to recognize that some of the language I use, I don't want to offend anyone and it's, ugh, so I wanting to put that out there. Um, it's hard to, I mean, I feel like I'm a spirit in a body and we live in a very material based society that's very much 
talked about how people look as opposed to how people are. And so I find it difficult to find the words for it. Um, so I recognize like I can move through the world now with a lot of privilege, whether it's, you know, masculine passing or cis passing, masculine passing, white passing or white, um, I'm Ashkenazi and white and recognizing that I have skin privilege in that. So there's a lot of different factors and also ability wise. So like how I move through the world, um, there's a lot, there's definitely like a lot of privilege based on how my body is perceived. And then in addition to that, there's also, I've have experienced transphobia and back in the day I did experience misogyny and it's, so it's, it feels like it's, it's tricky to be in that position to really talk about because there are some places where I feel like I am accepted but then as soon as I begin to open my mouth like my behavior I'm, how I'm hmm, how my body is viewed people think of me in, in some ways but then my behavior might be a different way and because I'm accepted into certain spaces doesn't mean I exactly want to be in those spaces if that makes sense so I feel like yes I feel like safer like walking down I recognize I feel safer walking down the street a lot of the time and I can access certain spaces. And then once I'm in a certain space, people maybe expect me to be a certain way or behave a certain way or have certain views. And I don't necessarily share those. And part of that is based on my own experience and based on people that I've met where I have, I'm very critical of the systems that are in place, for instance. So there are systems that I might benefit from, but I don't want to be a part of that. And then, and then in those times, those folks are, are there, is, is the response usually anger? Yeah, it can be like anger or confusion. Like if there's like cis guys who, you know, want to be, you know, and I'm pretty open. I'm not, I'm not stealth, but then I'm also not necessarily out to every single person I meet. So I think sometimes there's a lot of a, just a situation in the past, and I've kind of stopped doing comedy because I felt really uncomfortable in the whole comedy world where there's a lot of the times people expect me to be a misogynist or to, to make certain jokes, and it's like, I'm not going to stick around for this. And like, I can maybe correct people, but I also don't want to have to fight about it. And it's sometimes it's easier for me just to walk away, which is also a privilege in itself. Wow. Wow, that's actually a little bit surprising to me, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, especially because I know you were, like, in the improv world, and I always just assumed that that was, like, the most, you know, progressive of all the comedy folks, but I, I guess not at all. Yeah. I mean, it's... I think there are definitely individuals who are, and a lot of it's also me, and I think in the most, more recent years have become more political and there's definitely a place in comedy and improv where it should, it can and should be political. And then there's also a lot of, if not everyone else is on board with it, it requires a lot of uh, labor just to be, to explain why, like, I don't want to do a scene why I have to tell you that cops are bad, for instance, like we should already be on that page, if that makes sense. Right. So I feel like there's a certain understanding where it's like I'm just getting maybe it's like an age thing as well where folks are maybe in their early 20s and I'm in my now I'm in my like mid to late 30s that mm-hmm. could be it but I also don't want to put it down to age too because there are folks who are younger who are very informed and there are folks who are older who are not so it's it shouldn't be about that necessarily it's maybe like where do I feel like my energy is best placed I understand that I feel like there there comes a point you know where you become more politicized 
where there's just really no way to go back and there's no way to turn back. So you just see things and when you hear things, it just, you know, you have that knee-jerk reaction where you're like, oh, I just, I can't. Yeah. So it's like, it's either like, okay, I'm going to spend this labor because I care about you to like explain to you why this is fucked up. Yeah. Or it's just like, you're not worth it and I just have to walk away. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's a shame because it's, yeah, it's like things, I recognize that things won't change unless, you know, I have these conversations. I can't just wish someone to wake up. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, I just feel really tired a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, I really, I understand that. And I, I really relate to that. You know, I actually was at uh, the Trans Policy Summit. So the first ever Trans Policy Summit in California, and it was 25 trans leaders. And it was put together by uh, Trans Latina Coalition and Queen Victoria Ortega from Royalty Consulting. Mm -hmm. So it was really, really cool. And we were all in a room. And what we realized was that a lot of us have different approaches, but we have the same goal. So, mm-hmm. for example, some folks are okay with respectability politics, and they're like, yeah, I can totally meet with the legislators, and I can do that emotional labor and talk to them and, and why, about why they need to push this bill forward or why they need to create more economic opportunities for trans people. Yeah. And other people were like, nope, no way, fuck that. I just want to burn it down. Yep. <laughs> and just stay with my community. Yes, and yes. Totally okay. Yeah. And what we realized was it's about where everyone's emotional capacity is and like where they're both or where they're uh, most useful and most effective and everyone doesn't have to do everything. Right. Just knowing where your place is and then sticking to that and just like doing it well. Yes. Yeah. And diversity of tactics. Like there's so many different ways to make change. Yeah, exactly. There's just like what folks I think is so important in our community because we have so much trauma, you know? Oh, yeah. Remembering, like, you know, the person who is okay, like, you know, with respectability politics, like, they're not sellouts. They're just going at it from a different perspective and, you know, vice versa. The folks that are, like, in the street, you know, it's not that they're just problematic or troublesome. Mm -hmm. You know, like, (laughs) it's just like we all need to understand each other and just, like, not attack ways. Yes, yes. Because each way, if we're working together, it's almost like grass tops activism and grassroots activism Mm -hmm. and we're both coming from each side then like we're gonna squeeze the middle yeah yeah (laughs) yes oh i love that that's so true and you brought up a really good point too which is that we've like all experienced trauma and it's so hard i think especially within this community and probably many other communities as well where we end up um hurting each other because we've been hurt by others and we end up taking it out on each other and it's like Mm -hmm. it'd be nice if Oh, there would be ways, I guess, not just to like work on accountability for, for those of us who have who have hurt others and been hurt ourselves, but finding ways out of that where we can really work on punching up. And that kind of goes back to the idea in comedy where you really want to just punch at the people who have more privilege and more power instead of, you know, taking it out on folks with less power and privilege. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, that's really hard. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't have a tangible solution. (laughs) Not yet. Yeah, Yeah, me neither. It's tough. I mean, it's helpful to to talk about it for sure. And I always feel more enriched when I talk with other trans folks. And it's something that I think it's difficult to explain to folks who haven't, who just don't, haven't had that life experience. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm with it. (laughs) And like all the more important to be doing work, you know, for and with the community. Like it's just, it's so important. Yeah. I mean, it's critical. It really is. It's critical. Yeah. Um, You know, there was uh, another bill that we worked on that I did want to quickly mention. Yeah. I, I, I would love for folks to be aware of. Um, and it's the Transgender Work Opportunity Act, uh, which was put forth by Senator Ricardo Lara. And it's super, super, super cool because basically it states that every organization with 50 or more employees in the state of California has to include two hours of training on gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Oh, wow. And the harassment meeting. Wow. That's great. So... Yeah, so it's super awesome. But right now, we're at the place where it's like, okay, so now this is a law. Like, this is as a fact. It's in writing, black and white. Mm-hmm. But now how do we make sure that it's enforced yes. in every different county? Yeah. You know, so that, that's really where it is. And I know the, the Department of um, Fair Employment and Housing is really going to be up to them to like make it a, like and it, like so if a company decides hey you know what I don't really want to do this like making sure that the fine and the punishment is significant enough that it's incentivizes them to implement the training right because like let's say the fine is something small like like oh you get fined like a thousand dollars like if you're like a million dollar company and you don't want to do it you're like okay right. fine I'll right need a fine. right right which is like what so many like companies do to get out of whether it's you know to if they do something that harms the environment for instance they can just skirt around anything because they have the money to do so exactly so that's really where we're at you know right now so i just want to really encourage everyone to just kind of keep following that you know reach out to Ricardo Lara in his office. You can always just, like, Google the number and just kind of find out, like, how you can help implement it in your county. Great. So even in your city, even in your neighborhood, that's really what's going to be crucial Yeah. like, the upcoming years. Yes, and I think also making sure that the folks that they hire to do the trainings are folks who are competent when it comes to trans and gender identity issues. Exactly. Exactly. On point, a hundred percent. Like that, honestly, is like my dream that everyone who's hired to do it is actually a trans person. So, like, not only is it uh, creating a workplace that's better uh, for trans people and safer, but it's also creating economic opportunities for trans people to do the training. Right. Because I feel like so, so for so much of our lives, we end up doing this labor anyway. I mean, for survival, because we have to explain ourselves. And then we're not, mm-hmm. or then people are like, oh, can you do this or can you do that? And a lot of it is like, this is actual work. So why don't, why aren't we compensated for educating people? Exactly. Exactly. And it, yeah, this, this is a new frontier, Roman. Like yeah. really, you know, creating economic opportunities for trans people and housing. Yes. Housing for trans people. Yes. Very important. Oh, and it reminds me a bit, I've met the, the co-founders of Trans Lifeline, which is the, the hotline that folks can call if you're trans and having um, either like suicidal ideation or just wanting to talk. And it's, you know, run and staffed by exclusively trans folks and they're, and they're paid. So I am really appreciating this model of, you know, trans folks hiring other trans folks and supporting the community. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh. That that's the work I respect. 
that work I really, really, really respect. Yeah. I don't know if I could handle it personally. And I think, I don't know if I know how to detach, if that makes sense, like well enough to be able to handle that um, that specific line of work. Yeah. But I have so much respect and I'm just so grateful for the folks that can do that and do show up and do that every day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And again, it's like this idea of just kind of creating your own, you know, we have to, we have to create it ourselves if it's not there for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. It makes me feel better to know that there are folks like you and so many folks out there doing this really incredible work. It makes, it's, uh, there's so many, so many times when it feels like everything's against us in in a way. And then to hear about the opposite, you know, folks being empowered and taking control and actually making and creating the world that we want to live in is just, it just makes makes me feel really happy. Yeah, there's really a lot of trans people doing this work. And, you know, I just wanted to do a quick shout out too because, you know, I'm I'm blessed and privileged that I get paid to do this work. I mean, I was doing similar work before uh, without a paycheck because it's stuff I care about, but mm-hmm. I'm lucky now that like this work is able to sustain me financially yeah. um, and pay my bills. But I work with a committee of folks who are all volunteers. Uh, they just, they come because they care about it. And most of them are, you know, they are lucky in the sense that they have, like, another job. So, like, they're, you know, they're financially okay enough to be able to dedicate their time to doing this work. But, like, the team that I work with very often for the policy work, they're all volunteers. Mm. Wow. Whew. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I am curious about, um, if you don't mind talking about, what's it like in L.A.? I've, I visited it a few times, and I was actually considering moving down there a while ago um, for more you know, more work opportunities, certainly, as an actor. And mm-hmm. how is it? Because like, San Francisco has a reputation of being super LGBT-friendly, yet San Francisco itself has become a very difficult city to be able to afford to live in as well as the other parts of the Bay Area. And I'm curious about L.A. as a whole, what it's, what it's like for trans folks. And I know it's different for everyone, but I was curious as to your, your perspective on it, especially compared to New York. Well, so I, I think L.A. is a pretty decent place to be trans. Uh, the community's awesome. But I think the most important thing that I have to just say is that if you don't have access to a car, mm. if you're not able to afford a car in Los Angeles, it's a lot, it's way harder yeah. to be trans, especially mm. visibly trans in L.A. I see. Because um, you're on public transportation, um, and unfortunately, like, a lot of folks who are on public transportation, you know, have mental illness and addiction issues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like... Um, you know, in San Francisco, I just want to say it's like Union Square, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of like that. Like, a lot of folks like that are, you know, on public transportation. So it just it, it's kind of like a dangerous environment, you know. So a lot of trans women, they, they get harassed on public transportation. I see. You know, in, in certain neighborhoods. And then also, Los Angeles is very segregated, mm-hmm. way more so than New York. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest culture shock for me. Yeah. It's really segregated, um, you know. By race and by, you know, economic, socioeconomic status. Yeah. So, you know, 
there are neighborhoods that are kind of like the neighborhoods that trans people live in. Um, you know, a lot of folks do live in South LA. It's becoming more gentrified, unfortunately. Uh, folks live in like the East Side, you know, Lincoln Heights, Cypress Park, Highland Park, where I live, Echo Park, etc. And I, it seems to be, people seem to feel happiest in those places. But, um, I still would say, even though it's like cool to be trans, like in LA, it's not like perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it's far from perfect. I hear that. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine living in a place where there isn't community. There's definitely community, though. So that's yeah. the good thing. Yes, so yes. If you're here, like you come to LA, there is like a really strong, loving community. Mm-hmm. Like. For me, it was better than the one in New York. Um, and what I kind of like personally is that there's a lot of events that you can go to nice. that don't serve alcohol. Yes. So oh, like great. A lot of cool spaces. Yeah. So there's so there's the cool spaces. So obviously, they start with like you know the negative, just so I don't give anyone the wrong idea that it's like you know all glitter and rainbows. Yeah. And then once you get there, there's cool opportunities. So there's like. Um, there used to be this event called High Cuties mm-hmm. that was like kind of like a pop-up, like queer and trans, just like meet-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the two people that did it at their house, they created a cafe. So now there's a Cuties Cafe oh, in nice. East Hollywood. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, super oh. cute. So like they have little events there. And then a lot of the organizations, like St. John's, for example, has a trans community night every third Friday of the month. Um, and it's catered, so free food, usually watch a movie or play a game or something. So, like, you can just, trans people can just kind of, like, go and kick it there. And that group tends to be mostly trans women of color, so it's a really good place for, you know, trans women of color to meet each other. Uh, trans Latina Coalition has a lot of events. The Wall uh, has a lot of events, APAIT has a lot of cool, like, sober support groups. and So there's, like, you know, there's really a lot of cool community events to go to where you can just, like, meet people and just kick it with people um, that aren't necessarily in a bar setting. Nice. That's, not what you're looking That's so important, especially for folks who are, who are underage or folks who are in recovery. Um, it's, yeah. I think, just for the whole, not just trans folks, but the whole queer, you know, the whole queer community itself, it's so tricky to find places where you can go where there's not alcohol right in your face. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, we have we have a lot of those in LA. So that's that's really what I love about this city. Nice. You know, and um during during the uh summer we have like trans queer beach days. So that's really fun where it's just like it's basically, it centers trans people, mm-hmm. and it's like a whole bunch of trans people just come take over a beach. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, Reese Beast in New York? Yeah. Yeah, so like, it's, we kind of make like a pop-up Reese. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. So it's cool. Folks bring grills, there's food, you know, there's always, you know... And there's, like, a Facebook group, so, like, we make sure there's options, vegan options, gluten-free options, meat options, like, everything. Nice. Oh. Oh. Now I'm much more, I mean, I've been, I'm definitely overdue for a visit, and now even more so, I feel. So it'd be great to come down and check it out. Yeah, come visit me. Yeah. Aww. I live in Highland Park. Nice. So I live where, like, a lot of tramps people live. Cool. <laughs> Excellent. Very cool. Uh-huh. And did you want to uh, talk at all about the um, event that you're in town for? 
Oh, my God, yes. So uh, I'm in town for the National Transgender Health Summit. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, here right in the Oakland Convention Center. And basically there's like a few different tracks. Um, it's also transgender health, but I'm going to do actually the policy track because that's really like where my heart is. But I know there's like other tracks for like, you know, medical and like health professionals and, um, and stuff along those lines. I'm really going because I really want to figure out how I can affect health policy. Uh, one of my passion projects, uh, I feel like I sound so L.A. saying passion projects, but, you know, <laughs> one of my passion projects really is seeing how I can standardize trans-competent training in mm. medical schools, mm -hmm. uh, at the very least across the state. So, and then hopefully it's, you know, within the next 50 or so years across the country. Like, that's really what I want to do, because I feel like that should be a core course in, like, every medical school. Yes. Oh, totally. I feel really... Um grateful when I hear folks I know who are going into medical school and have, you know, trans specific questions or are looking to just be more knowledgeable of it. Because I think a lot of us have had, even at some places where one might assume that there is trans competent healthcare, you might have a doctor who might not know something. And sometimes we've had to end up doing the educating for them. So uh -huh. it's so crucial that, you know, everyone has access, not only just access to get trans healthcare, but the folks who are providing that healthcare know what they're talking about. Yeah, a trans person should never have to be educating their doctor. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's usually what we wind up doing. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer. And then just saying it out loud, I'm like, oh yeah, that's happened a number of times, both in New York and, and sometimes here in the Bay. And it's, it feels like, ugh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just one other thing to deal totally. with. Yeah. Well, if anyone's in LA, you know, uh, you know, and that's St. John's, you definitely don't have to educate your doctor there. Nice. <laughs> nice. You know, and I also just wanted to put out a quick plug too, that we have a program in Los Angeles called My Health LA. So we do see undocumented trans people and they're able to have their hormones paid for. Oh, great. So, you know, yeah, just for folks who are undocumented, like, they, they can't get health care. And uh, I can give you, I don't know if you have, like, um, you have, like, a Facebook page. Yeah. I can give you my contact info, so if anyone is interested, but they can reach out to me directly and have my direct line. Sure, yeah. Want. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Yeah, I want to help. Oh, you yeah. Know, I'm in a privileged position, and I just, I just want to help. Oh. I want to give you a hug over the. It doesn't. I know hugs don't work like that. You can't give a hug over the phone, but I, w I really want to. <laughs> I feel your hug. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, well, we still have some time. So, if there's anything else you wanted to share, um, please do. Um, I feel. I feel like I pretty. I talked a lot. <laughs> like <laughs> I cover a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but if you have any yeah. questions. I'm happy to answer them to the best of my ability. Um, cool. Yeah, I definitely feel like we did we did talk a lot. So yeah, thanks for um thanks for calling in and for sharing so much great information. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You know, this is any any opportunity to share this with trans people so like folks know their rights, you know, that's that's what I'm here for. Yeah. Excellent. Well, um yeah, thanks again. And also we can um, is it possible for us if we just uh, I can provide a link for the the St. John's Well Child and Family Center link online so folks oh, can yeah, go there? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I can send that to you. I'll text it to you right after we get off the call. Oh, sure. Great. Cool. Well, thanks again so much for, for calling in and definitely enjoy your stay here. Thank you. Yeah. I'll be in San Francisco a little bit later, so uh, let's talk and see if we can meet up for dinner. That would be wonderful. I'd love that. Awesome. Yay. All Aww. right, I'll see you a text. All right, sounds good. Thank, Thank you, you Jason. Me, Thank you. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Oh, thank you so much, Jason Hill, for calling in. I know we don't have video, videos, videos, video cameras here at the station. I'm smiling ear to ear. Um, it's just so I'm so grateful for folks uh, like Jason who are doing this incredible work out there, and all the folks who are volunteering and working, and just to make life better for all trans folks out there, especially folks who are marginalized in uh, many other ways in addition to to transphobia. So um, just a lot of gratitude, and that that makes up for the, you know, we hear about the, and we talk about the horrendous things that sometimes happen in government. And then we have people like this doing really incredible work to help people. And just so grateful for that. So we're going to take a bit of an extended music break and we'll be back a little bit after one o'clock with some more news. So please do stay tuned and here's some more Linton Quasi Johnson with a song called off the album, making history. No, tell me something. Mr. Government man, tell me something. How long you really feel you could have keep we on the heel when the truth don't reveal about how you grab and steal, about how you make your crooked deal, make your crooked deal, eh? Well, down in Southall, where peach did get fall, the Asians them farm up a human wall against the fascists and them police shield. And I'm sure that the Asians got plenty zeal, got plenty zeal, got plenty zeal. It is no mystery, we're making history. It is no mystery, we're winning victory. It is no mystery, we're making history. It is no mystery, we're winning victory. Now tell me something, Mr. Police Spokesman, tell me something. How long you really think we would have take your button lick? The jack boot kick, the dirty bag of trick on your racist politics, your racist politics, eh? Well, down in Bristol, they had no pistol, but them chase your Babylon away. Man, you should have seen your Babylon, how them really run away. You should have seen your Babylon, them pick up that deal, pick up that deal, pick up that deal. It is no mystery. We're making history, it is no mystery, we're winning victory, it is no mystery, we're making history, it is no mystery, we're winning victory. Now tell me something, Mr. Right Wing Man, tell me something. How long you really feel we would have gravel and steel when so much murder can seal, when we wound can heal, when we feel the way we feel, feel the way we feel, eh? Well, there was Toxted, and there was Massside, and a lot of other places where the police had to hide. Well, there was Brixton, and there was Chapel Town, and a lot of other places that was burned to the ground. Burned to the ground, burned to the ground. It is no mystery, we're making history. It is no mystery, we're winning victory. It is no mystery, we're making history. It is no mystery, we're winning victory.
First they coming and they going in and out of the party The dubbing and the rubbing and the rocking to the rhythm The dancing and the skanking and the party really swinging Then the crash and the bang and the flame start to drunk The heat and the smoke and the people start to choke The screaming and the crying and the dying and the fire We didn't know I said it could have happened, you know Anytime, anywhere Or don't it happen to we and the Asians them already? But in spite of all that, everybody was still shocked when we get the cool facts about that brutal attack, when we find out about the fire over New Cross, about the innocent life them will last, about the physically scared, the mentally marred, and them relatives who take it so hard. And you know, Although plenty of people were surprised, you know, said them kind of thing there could have happened to we in a this year Great Britain, in a London today. And a few get frightened, and a few get subdued. Almost everybody had to sympathize with the loved ones of the injured and the dead. For this year massacre, make we come to realize it could have been me, it could have been you. I wanna feel we picnic them who fell victims to the terror by night. But wait, you know remember how the whole of Black Britain did rock with grief, how the whole of Black Britain did turn a melancholy blue, not the possible blue of the murderer's eyes, but like the smoke of gloom and that cold Sunday morning. But stop, you know remember. How the whole of Black Britain turn a fiery red. Not the callous red of the killer's eyes, but red with rage like the flames of the fire. First the laughing and the talking and the styling in the party. The joking and the jiving and the joy of the party. The moving and the grooving and the dancing with the disco. Then the panic and the pushing and the boring through the fire. The running and the jumping and the flames them rising higher. The weeping and the moaning hold the harrow of the fire. Is a hell of a something for true, you know. What a terrible price we have to pay, Doma. Just for live a little life. Just for struggle for survive. Every day is just worries and struggle and strife. Imagine so much young people cut off in them prime. Before the twilight of them time. Without no reason or rhyme. Casting the shadow of gloom over with life. Look how the police and the press try them desperate best to put a stop to a quest for the truth. You remember, first them say it could be arson, then them say it could be not. First them say a firebomb, then them say it was not. Them imply it could have white, them imply it could have black, who responds for the attack against those innocent young blacks. Instead of raising the alarm, make the public know what go on. Plenty paper print pure lie for blind your public eye. And the police, them plot and scheme, confuse and conceal. Me hear say, even the poor parents of the dead, them try to use. But you know, in spite of them wicked propaganda, 
We refuse to surrender to them ugly innuendo. For up till now, not one of them, neither Stockwell, neither Wilson, nor Bell, not one of them can tell we why. Not one of them can tell we who. Who turned that night of joy into a morning of sorrow? Who turned the jollity into an ugly tragedy? First the coming and the going in and out of the party The dubbing and the rubbing and the rocking to the rhythm The dancing and the skanking and the party really swinging The laughing and the talking and the styling in the party The joking and the jiving and the joy of the party The moving and the grooving and the dancing to the disco Then the crash and the bang and the flame start to trunk The heat and the smoke and the people start to choke The screaming and the crying and the dying in the fire the panic and the pushing and the boring through the fire The running and the jumping and the flames them rising higher The weeping and the moaning hold the horror of the fire When we mash up the wicked one plan 
Those were three songs by Linton Quasi Johnson off the album Making History. Very good stuff. So um, when we start off the show, I was talking a little bit about the J20 defendants. And there's a good podcast off of It's Going Down. And they interview a couple folks who are involved with that lawsuit. For folks who don't know, um, over 200 people were kettled during the inauguration, the protest during the inauguration in January in D.C., many folks have been able to get the charges dismissed, but there are still some folks who are facing up to like 70 to 80 years in prison. And the way they are trying to frame this is that they, some windows were broken and there was a limo that was set on fire. And for some reason, this is more upsetting to people than, I don't know, people being murdered by police. I don't know. Anyway, or, you know, government trying to take away our rights. So people were, okay, so some windows were broken, and even though property doesn't have feelings and isn't a thing, uh, that's really upsetting to some people. Oh my gosh, the limo, what are we going to do? Hello, you can replace a window, you can replace a car, you can't replace a person. Some folks don't realize that, though. And in order to try to quell dissent, to try to um, just um, make it so people won't feel comfortable protesting, to suppress the people, that's the word I'm looking for, suppress, they decided to have these really hefty charges against people 
um, who happened to be maybe standing beside someone who broke a window. So it's not even the people who broke the window in the first place, which in my opinion should not even be an arrestable offense. Uh, so they by it's like guilt by association in a way. So there are people there who were protesting, which one should be allowed to do, as well as people there who are journalists, people who there who are reporting, people there who are uh, photographing the event, and those folks were arrested as well. So even if you're witnessing the event and reporting on the event, um, some of these people were arrested, and the the charges they're you know charges like you know rioting and f- felony and again this goes back to uh, breaking like a window in a Starbucks for instance so something that's not directly harming somebody is apparently a threat to the government because they're so scared so they have so many people were arrested people were kettled there was a lot of uh, there's abuse that happened as well pretty disgusting mistreatment by law enforcement and by you know which is not a, a new thing. And so there's still some folks who are being held on charges. And the J-20 defendants, um, are their trial's going to start in D.C. on November 15th. So there's ways you can support them. So I was going to get to this. Um, oh, uh, there's a podcast that is very informative that you can check out. And if you go to itsgoingdown.org, if you go to the ID, IDG cast, um, it's about an hour-long interview. And it's really good. And I also played most of that on Heterotopia this this past Monday. So if you go to Mutiny Radio, you can check it out there as well. If you go to Mutiny Radio and check out the podcast section, if you go to um, last Monday's shows, so this would be Monday the 5th of November, 5th, 4th, 6th, I'm just throwing out numbers here. Wednesday was the 8th, so Tuesday was the 7th, Monday was the 6th. So if you go to November 6th, the podcast of Heterotopia, you can listen to that. So I played that as well. And just there's ways that you can support people and also just finding out more information about the case than I am providing right now. So I recommend folks check that out. And also, if you wanted to, to support the defendants, that's great. One thing you can do, um, you can start talking to people about it because a lot of people aren't aware. The media, for some surprising reason, doesn't feel like it's important to cover this. They don't feel like it's important to cover the fact that folks are, you know, being held accountable for doing, you know, imagine you're standing next to someone who commits a, it shouldn't even be a crime though. It's like not even that bad, you know, it's like you smash a window. So what? (sighs) That somehow is like punishable. But imagine you're even witnessing someone do that and then you're arrested for it and you face up to 70 to 80 years in jail because of that. That's fucked up. And I think also they're trying to set a precedent too, where it's going to, again, quell, you know, try to stop the dissent and try to make an example of people. So people will not feel like they need to take the streets, which I think people do need to take the streets. So I'm going to also just go to a webpage here and see how you can support. You can also, in addition to talking about it, which I think is the most effective thing, one of the most effective things to do uh, is to, to let people know about it. Cause not everyone knows about it. Like, you know, some of us know people who were there, some of us were there, um, or if we follow this information, we're aware of it, but not everyone does. So I think it's really crucial that people start talking about it. So talk to people who might not know about it and ask them what they think about it. Ask them how they would feel if they were, they were somewhere and someone beside them were, you know, if you're, you're, you're kettled, it's just, it's so, it's like, I can't, it's like, how do you get, I think there's an issue of like folks who are not empathetic at all, which is a whole other issue. And then there's the folks who just don't know about it. So how do we inform more people? Things aren't going to change until more people know about this and can act on it. So you can also sign on a statement of solidarity. And that's also, if you go to it's going down.org, uh, they have, um, if you want a group, uh, if you want a group or crew to sign on to the, uh, to sign on to the statement of solidarity with the J20 defendants, you can send an email to j20 
and that's J, the numbers two zero, endorsements at protonmail.com. And you can also find this out at itsgoingdown.org. A statement of solidarity with the hashtag disruptj20 defendants, and they have a list here that you can sign, and they have different. Then uh, they have legal support, so you can like donate for legal support. And they have different regions too. So they have Pittsburgh, North Carolina, Richmond, Virginia, Baltimore, Hampton Roads, Virginia, New York City, Philadelphia, West Michigan, DC, and then individuals as well. So if you go to itsgoingdown.org, and then they also have like a solidarity J20, so you can check that out there. And I'm also going to check out. There should be another page I'm trying to find. Not trying, will find. I got a fortune cookie recently, and it was like, don't try, do. It was like the kind of Yoda type thing. Ways to support. Here we go. I did it. Uh, you go to fundraiser.com, and that's F U N D R A Z R.com forward slash J20 resistance. And they are trying to raise $250,000. They're only at $12,890. So um, we need more folks to do that. And uh, they have a video here, and if it's, if there's, uh, let's see, I'm going to see if there's any sound to it, or, because then, okay, so I'm going to play their video, because they will also, it's good to have other voices on here, I'm going to rewind it a little bit, and you can find this at the fundraiser dot com slash J20 resistance, so I'm going to play this video. So you also have more information to go on. In an unprecedented case of political repression, nearly 200 people are facing six or more felonies and two misdemeanors, including inciting to riot, rioting, conspiracy to riot, and property destruction for protesting Trump's inauguration. On January 20th, Inauguration Day, tens of thousands of people from all walks of life, women, indigenous folks, Black Lives Matter and environmentalists, use blockades, marches, street dance parties, and other creative tactics to disrupt the celebration of Trump's first day as president. Meanwhile, during an anti-capitalist, anti-fascist march, the police encircled protesters and closed off a whole city block. Protesters stood on a corner for nine hours in a police kettle, and DC cops eventually arrested over 230 people. All 230 waited in the cold without food, water, medical attention, or bathrooms, and cops continued to assault them with projectiles and chemical weapons. The U.S. Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case in a way never seen before. People charged faced up to six decades in jail. Cell phones were confiscated and searched, seized and hacked. Social media data was mined, particularly through Facebook and Apple account subpoenas, and the Department of Justice issued a warrant for all website visitor information to disrupt J20.org. The D.C. police handled protesters on January 20th in a way that no one expected. The police complaints board found that Washington cops violated several of their own codes of conduct. A lawsuit by the ACLU states that individuals were grossly mishandled and physically violated. Police threw over 70 sting ball grenades at protesters over the course of the day. Despite all of these circumstances, there has been an astonishing display of legal solidarity with almost 200 people committed to fighting these charges and are choosing to go to trial instead of accepting plea deals. The prosecution knows that the case is constitutionally flawed. The indictment bases its case on these activities. Marching, wearing black, chanting fuck capitalism. Defense attorneys have argued that nearly 200 people are being held responsible for the same five counts of property destruction, and prosecution is attempting to redefine conspiracy to include dressing alike and vague association. 
The same prosecutorial trend is being applied to Black Lives Matter and environmental protectors and an increasing number of people are being charged with felony rioting. This felony tactic is a new attempt to defeat protests that are expressing outrage at presidential policy, corporate pipelines, racism, and police brutality. J20 is essentially a case that criminalizes dissent. J20 trials begin in November 2017 and will stretch all to 2018. But how we support the J20 defendants will determine how effectively anyone can march, rally, organize, protest under the Trump administration. Protest into a felony offense is dangerous for anyone who believes in resistance. Don't let them scare our movements into silence. Donate now to fund this historic fight. DefendJ20Resistance.org slash support and find us on social media at DefendJ20. Okay, so there's such much more information, and you can also donate if you're able, spread the word. There's a lot of different ways you can get the word out about that. And again, also I recommend checking out the podcast on It's Going Down, the IDG cast, or you can check out, I also replayed it on Heterotopia this past Monday. Check that out, mutinyradio.fm. If you go to the podcast section for Monday, this past Monday, November 6th, for Heterotopia, uh, I play that podcast there as well. Also on the show, I played a... A clip from The Intercept also has a podcast and they were talking about police brutality in Canada so I learned a lot from that as well and also Justin Trudeau who a lot of folks he's kind of like the Obama equivalent in Canada where he's liberal and also super problematic in a lot of his policies and behavior and simply because the bar is super low with politicians and heads of state does not mean that everyone else who's not a full on fascist should get away free so just putting that out there Okay. Yeah. Justin Trudeau, you know, everyone's like, Oh, he's attractive and da, 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 da. And like, Oh, he's okay with gay people. And then he's also not good with, you know, dealing with the pipeline situation. So there's more information about that as well. And also with, you know, folks not standing up to law enforcement and their abuses. So we'll, we'll put that out there. All right, cool. So next up, going to go to the next few stories and that's going to be about, um, the, the uh, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. I'm finding my words. Uh, this is from the Daily Coast, and this came out on November 8th. Uh, before Danica Rome, Althea Garrison was the first trans woman elected to a state legislature in, two th- in, 1990, <laughs> in 1992. Now, oftentimes when there's someone who's elected, it's like, oh, this is the first person who ever did that. Some people were even saying that with fucking Hillary Clinton, even though there were plenty of women who ran for president, and a lot of us voted for those other women who ran for president, you know, before her. Anyway... Uh, it's cool to like understand history and also recognize some people are maybe written out of history or not written about. So it's really crucial just to understand our history, especially as trans folks. So this article is written by uh, Wagatawe, and that's uh, W-A-G-A-T-W-E. Uh, last night, Democrat Danica Rome was elected to Virginia's House of Delegates, making her the first trans woman to serve in the state's legislature. While this is a historic win, it's important for us to use proper context. Many people and news organizations have been saying Rome's the first transgender woman in U.S. history to serve in a state legislature. Uh, that is not correct. Meet Althea Garrison. She was elected to Massachusetts's state legislature in 1992 and served for one term from 1993 to 1995. In a 2012 post at the blog Transgrio, Monica Roberts writes a little bit about Garrison's history. Althea Garrison was born in Hahira, Georgia, on October 7th, 1940, and moved to Boston to attend beauty school. She went on to enroll at Newberry Junior College and received an associate's degree. 
Garrison later received a BS degree in administration from Suffolk University, an MS degree in management from Lesley College, and a certificate in special studies in administration and management from Harvard University in 1984. Although Althea was ne- has never publicly announced her trans status or talked about it, we are aware that people who transitioned during that more restrictive HBIDGA era were advised to never let anyone know their trans status and live their lives. In 1976, her name change petition was approved and filed in the Suffolk County Courthouse consistent with her appearance and medical condition. That's in quotes. And interesting, given the conversation we just had about how now... Thankfully, many folks are working on the policy level to make it so it's easier for folks to uh, have their, their name change and all of that paperwork done. Uh, this is a friendly reminder to keep an accurate account of our history. Black and trans people are often overlooked and actively erased from the history books. Let's do our part to actively combat that. So again, really cool that we know the... We know the, the history here. So there are many trans folks who won on election day. Um, so there's a, an article it's from the HRC, which I know is a super problematic organization. This is where the article's from. Just wanting to put that out there, hrc.org. You know, the HRC is also known for not necessarily supporting trans folks in the past for putting forward, uh, laws that maybe throw trans people under the bus where it's like, oh, well, this will be good for gay and lesbian folks, but not trans folks. So it's also interesting to see when they show up and the fact that putting marriage as the main thing you're fighting for was not really a service for the queer community at, at large. And I think it's crucial to, to, to say that. So this was a post that was submitted by Charles Gerard, digital organizer. And, and, and the article says it's an incredible turnout of pro equality voters. Americans across the country elected at least eight out transgender people to office during yesterday's election. Uh, These historic wins took place in states across the country from Georgia to Pennsylvania as Americans rejected the vitriolic rhetoric that 45 and do we have a name for the VP who's a fucking closeted asshole who like uh, believes in conversion therapy? Uh, Okay, you know who I'm talking about. I don't even want to fucking say his name. Continue to spew. HRC applauds the following openly trans. I'm also just angry at HRC, but that's okay. Uh, HRC applauds the following openly transgender candidates who won a wide variety of races. Andrea Jenkins, uh, Minnesota, the Minneapolis City Council. Voters elected Jenkins to the Minneapolis City Council as the first openly transgender woman of color elected to public office in the U.S. Danica Rome, Virginia, uh, Virginia House of Delegates. Rome unseated anti-LGBTQ delegate Rob, or excuse me, Bob Marshall, and her electoral victory will make her Virginia's first out transgender public official and the nation's only out transgender state representative. Uh, Jerry Cannon, New Hampshire, Summersworth School Board. Cannon joined the Summersworth School Board yesterday. According to her LinkedIn page, she is planning on running for New Hampshire state representative. Lisa Middleton, California, Palm Springs City Council. Middleton's victory in the Palm Springs City Council election made her the first openly transgender person elected to a non-judicial office in the state of California. Steph Kuntz, uh, Georgia, Doraville City Council. Kuntz won a spot on her hometown city council, becoming her city's first openly transgender elected official. Tyler Titus, Pennsylvania, Erie School Board. Titus's win makes him the first out transgender person elected to office in Pennsylvania after a successful write-in campaign to join the ballot. 
Uh, Philippe Cunningham, Minnesota, the Minneapolis City Council. Cunningham earned a spot on the Minneapolis City Council. He is the first transgender man elected to a major city's council in the U.S. And Raven Mathern, Connecticut, Stamford Board of Representatives. Mathern joins her local Board of Representatives as the state's first openly transgender lawmaker. Uh, Mathern will also be the youngest member in the board's history. These candidates represent not only regional voters, but the 1.4 million transgender Americans across the country. Uh, for trans youth across the country, Danica Rome's election isn't just a headline or even history, HRC National Press Secretary Sarah McBride told the New York Times. It's hope, hope for a better tomorrow. At a time when the 45 pence gross fuckers regime continues to attack underrepresented Americans, these candidates prove that LGBTQ people and their allies uh, are resist, are resist, vote and win, are resisting, voting and winning. Okay, let's put it that way. Uh, and then late Wednesday afternoon, Minneapolis finished uh, tabulating their city council results and determined Philippe Cunningham, the winner of the Ward 4 race. And this post has also been updated to include Raven Mathern and they have photos of folks as well. So that's cool. And I'm also very much, you know, for folks changing things outside the system and inside the system and congrats to all the folks who won. That's pretty awesome. So key, totally key. <laughs> I don't think I often do a Cartman voice on this show, but sometimes it happens. Who knew? All right. We're going to be playing some more music and, then we'll be back with some more news and we'll take a bit of a change in the musical direction. We'll play some Afghan wigs. Uh, they're one of my favorite bands. And uh, here we go.
and welcome back to Weekly Review. Talking a little bit more about election stuff. Uh, so I mentioned before, so this is, article comes from The Hill. Dot com. It's going to read a couple paragraphs here. A Republican New Jersey official, because I just ugh, love this story. A Republican New Jersey official who posted a meme mocking the Women's March was defeated in an election. Um, and this is last night, but this article came out a couple days ago. Um, so on Tuesday, uh, by a woman who was inspired by his remarks to run for office, the AP reported Wednesday. Democrat Ashley Bennett defeated Republican John Carmen Tuesday for the Atlantic County freeholder seat, according to the AP. Carmen posted a meme on the day of the Women's March, and it was just made a stupid, gross comment. I'm not even going to read it. And uh, what he said. And then he later apologized. Uh, but first-time candidate Bennett decided to challenge him for the seat after being angered by the image. Carmen attended 45's inauguration in January, and which took place one day before the march. And he also received criticism for wearing a patch with a Confederate flag. So fuck this guy. He's already misogynist and also the Confederate flag. Fuck him twice. Uh, the win was just one of many for Democrats on Tuesday, which included Democratic wins in gubernatorial races in both New Jersey and Virginia. Now, I personally am not a fan of Democrats as a whole. I think there's a lot of problematic folks in that Democratic Party, and I think we also need to hold people accountable. And just because you're not an outright fascist doesn't mean that you're super awesome with the people. And I also don't want to like rain on anyone's parade, and at the same time, it's really important to be critical of the folks in office. And so... Chris Christie is no longer going to be the governor of New Jersey, which is good. And so a Democrat was elected in New Jersey, and people are excited about this. And I also just want to point out that this dude used to work for Goldman Sachs for, like, a long time. So we need to hold these people accountable. So I recognize that it's good that this Chris Christie is no longer there. And this person coming in, though, please don't act like this person is has spent a long time working within the community. If you've been working for Goldman Sachs, they're kind of evil. So just putting that out there. I think it's really important that we see where people are coming from and also don't stop resisting. And also just because you voted doesn't mean that you're that you've done your work. I think there's a lot of ways to show up for people. And also when you vote for someone in office, please do hold them accountable. And please also find ways outside the system to, to, to get done what we need to get done. That's my point. Putting it out there. That's that's it. Okay, cool. Uh, whew. Okay. And next I'm going to read... It's that point in the show where I'm just talking real fast. Uh, I'm going to go back to reading another about another trans woman who was elected. And this comes from The Advocate. Uh, trans woman Andrea Jenkins elected to Minneapolis City Council. So I'm going to read more about her. And she's the first transgender person elected to a major city's governing body and the first trans person of color elected to any office in the U.S. And this was written by Trudy Ring. And this came out on November 7th. Andrea Jenkins has won... Uh, election to uh, the Minneapolis City Council, making her the first trans person elected to a major city's governing body and one of the first out trans people of color elected to any office in the United States. Jenkins won in the city's eighth ward, where she had been a policy aide to departing council vice president Elizabeth Glidden. The Minneapolis Star Tribune had endorsed her, saying she was highly qualified and well-prepared for the office. She bested three other candidates. Jenkins is a Democrat. The race is officially nonpartisan, but but candidates can identify with a party label. She had endorsed. She had the endorsement of the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, as the Democratic Party is known in Minnesota, and of Victory Fund. She won more than 70% of the vote in her ward, according to the Star Tribune. As an aide to Glidden and previous 8th Ward Council member Robert Lilligren, 
Jenkins worked to revitalize the neighborhood with small businesses and art ventures, art venues, and helped organize a trans equity summit. She emphasized, however, that revitalization must not come at the expense of poor people. During the campaign, she said her priorities include developing affordable housing, raising the minimum wage, addressing youth violence as a matter of public health, and supporting minority artists. She has a she's a historian with the Transgender Oral History Project at the University of Minnesota, as well as a poet, prose author, and performance artist who has received numerous grants for her work. Victory Fund President and CEO Aisha C. Moody Mills released this statement. Andrea Jenkins shattered a glass ceiling tonight, becoming the first out trans woman ever elected to the city council of a major U.S. city. Andrea ran on improving the lives of constituents in her ward, but the significance of her victory for the trans equality movement is undeniable. Americans are growing increasingly aware of trans equality in people, and this win will surely inspire other trans people to run for office and further inclusion in their communities. A trans man, Philippe Cunningham, and a cisgender lesbian, Julia Presenta, are also running for council seats in Minneapolis. Results in the races are still to come, but we heard that Philippe won, so that's awesome. And congratulations, Andrea Jenkins. That's She's the kind of person who, that person I support in that's awesome. So yay. Good. Yay. Happy. Good. Good times. All right. So we have about 20 minutes or so left on the program. Coming up next will be Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. If you would like to have a show of your own here, please do send us an email. We have slots available. It's uncensored. You can do two hours a week of whatever you want. We have music programming, news, talk radio, um, comedy, and informational education, anything you want here. So please do check us out. We have shows here every day of the week. We also have live performance slots. So if you're interested in, in renting a space here, we have Saturday nights available. Also, please do check out mutinyradio.fm. If you like this show and are able to support it, please do. Um, we're doing a, a Patreon. We have a Patreon account at patreon.com slash weekly rev. And that's W-E-E-K-L-Y-R-E-V. And we are working on um, raising funds to cover the cost of renting the studio, which is about 100 bucks a month. So we're at $72. So even if you chip in a dollar a month, that would help us out tremendously. So please do check us out at patreon.com slash weekly rev. And you can also donate directly to Mutiny Radio as well, because we are a, a collectively-ish run studio um, community here. Uh, wanting to provide spaces for people to speak their truth. So please do support the station, support the show if you are able. And also you can listen in to Heterotopia Mondays from 4 to 6 p.m. here at the station. I also do kind of a similar show. I play a lot of other podcasts um, and conversations that have been had, and it's super informative. So please do check that out. All right. It's time for some more music while I get together some more stories for the end of the program. So we'll keep on playing some more afghan wigs because why not
So, coming back, we'll keep some music on in the background. Why not? And, uh, probably just gonna go over some headlines in the next few stories, because there's a lot to get to, and we have a few more minutes left, and there's always just so much to get to. So, there's a, uh, on uh, Democracy Now!, there's a article that came out on November 9th, Report on Equality Finds Three Richest Americans Wealthier Than the Bottom Half. And that's Jeff Bezos from Amazon, and we don't like him at all. And we, being me and many people, as well as the workers for Amazon, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And I know Warren Buffett donates a lot of money. I know they, they do, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, but like, shouldn't you like donate enough so you're no longer the one of the three most wealthy people? Shouldn't that be the case? Uh, do more. Do more. And also, why are you around? Anyway, just, it's, I, I don't, I don't get it. If you have that much, why not donate the rest of it, uh, I, I don't know. Anyway, that's me. You can read more about it at Democracy Now. That's probably not the most helpful commentary on it. It's just like, why? Why? Like, when you get to that place, why not just keep on giving it away so you're no longer up there? Anyway, another thing. Uh, ugh. Uh, the GOP tax bill could be a disaster for PhD students, and this comes from Vox.com. It would really upend the American PhD system, a professor says. Now, obviously, a lot of folks know that both with... 
undergrad and graduate school leaves a lot of folks with student debt that's um, and it just uh, sometimes feels like insurmountable to pay off. And so now the House Republicans have another tax overhaul plan. I don't like these House Republicans at all. A lot of things I want to say about them will get me in trouble. So let's just say um, if I could do anything, if I had any magical powers, it would be maybe for them to step down and to donate their wealth and to stop harming people. That would be a very peaceful solution that I think a lot of folks would get behind. Um, and also, I know a lot of these folks are also criminals. So it's just so distressing that these are folks in positions of power who are harming folks. At the very least, if they could step down, give away their wealth. How about we do that? How about they stop trying to pass laws that harm people, especially, you know, gearing towards education? Why not use the money that goes to the military for education? Why not do that? That would help a lot of people. But again, I'm not running for office because... You know, me and this, uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with the system. I would have difficulty fitting in in that way. If I think for folks who do that, more power to you. If you're there to help the people, um, I'm behind you. And I also recognize that that's not necessarily my place. So let's put the energy out there, collectively put the energy out there that people in positions of power who are harming folks, that they step down and they redistribute their wealth among the masses. I know that's asking for a lot. Unlikely it'll happen. It's the most... Uh, Maybe peaceful thing I can say about them right now because I'm filled with a lot of rage, to be honest. And a lot of the things I want to say about them might be satisfying in the short term, but not in the long term. Next um, comes from The Root. Uh, rooting for all the black folk. Seven cities in America elected their first black mayors Tuesday night. And this was written by Angela Helm. And this came out on Wednesday. So I'll read a little bit about this. In what is being termed a watershed referendum against Trumpism, just as the 2016 presidential election was about uh, tapping into the racist tendencies of America, pushed back against the political status quo, black people showed up and showed out on, in Tuesday night's elections, giving Democrats several sweeping electoral victories. Uh, this is not to say that only black people elected the mayors in the seven cities that saw their first black mayors last night. Some of the cities, most of them in the South, did not have black majorities or even pluralities. Also, at least one in the pack is a millennial and two are women. And the wins came in places as disparate as Georgia, Montana, and Minnesota. Two mayors hailed from cities rocked by high profile police shootings, um, but most ran on platforms of progressive, progressivism or inclusion. And so we see that um, African-Americans were elected mayor for the first time in uh, uh, Statesboro, Georgia, Jonathan McCuller, uh, Georgetown, South Carolina, Brendan Barber, uh, Milledgeville, Georgia, that's Mary Parham Copeland, Helena Montana, and that's Wilmot Collins, Cairo, Georgia, Booker Gaynor, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, Melvin Carter, and Charlotte, North Carolina, in Zvi Lyles, uh, first black female mayor. Uh, the biggest mayoral story involving the biggest city was that of 66-year-old city administrator Vi Lyles, who was elected the first African-American woman to become mayor of Charlottesville or Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, on Tuesday. Lyles handily beat Republican Kenny Smith, who heavily outspent her. Ha 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 ha! Right on. Very cool. Uh, the two major issues in Charlotte included division over House Bill 2, also known as the Transgender Bill, which repealed a Charlotte ordinance that 
had extended some rights to LGBT people. There was also the issue of how the city handled the unrest that followed the police shooting death last year of Keith Lamont Scott. Then there was Jonathan McCuller, the new mayor in the tiny town of Statesboro, Georgia, a majority white hamlet who built his win on a platform of change and inclusion. All right. And Wilmot Collins of Helena, Montana, he's now mayor of a city that is more than 93% white, but again, ran a campaign based on progressive principles, including reducing teen and veteran homelessness and ensuring access to clean water. The story of 38-year-old Melvin Carter of St. Paul, Minnesota, involves an issue that has been a lightning rod across the nation, the killing of African-Americans by police and the need for police reform. Carter, the son of a St. Paul police officer, was notably supported by the family of Philando Castile, who was tragically shot and killed by a police officer on video in 2016. Other first-time black mayors include a woman, Mary Parham Copeland of Millage... Milledgeville, Georgia, who scored an incredible upset over her incumbent opponent with six votes. Wow. In smaller cities, wins went to Brendan Barber of the seaport city of Georgetown, South Carolina, and Booker Gaynor of Cairo, Georgia, a millennial in a small town with a small white majority. Uh, This freshman class joins dozens of black mayors across the nation in cities large and small, urban and not. Congratulations to them all. So some positive news here from the weekly review. Um, and there's also something else. And I recognize this has been a very election heavy episode uh, towards, you know, with the news and it's, you know, appreciating when folks, I think if, if folks who actually represented the people were elected, um, a lot of us would have more faith in the system. So here's to, you know, here's to that happening. And again, folks doing even thing, you know, inside the system and outside the system, I think it's also crucial to, to consider. So, that's that's good good stuff okay and now um gonna play another song in the background and um yeah i'm just kind of talking and we're gonna get to the last article here before we wrap up and also has to do with elections and some positive things that happened i think it's really nice because it kind of well, it doesn't quite make up for last year. It's nice to know that there is the, the there can be the backlash to all the the terrible elections that happened. And when you get folks who know what they're doing, that's some that's some good stuff. So I'm gonna play another um, Afghan Week song because that's just where we're at today. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. I really do su- appreciate it, and su- you know, um, it's great to have listeners. If it's stuff you like, please do you know. Check in, let us know what you like. Uh, I want to continue providing this content for people, and it's it's great to know that there are folks out there who listen and who care about it. So thank you so much for that. All right. So, yeah, I'm going to do another song here in the background. This is a song called Can Rova from the Afghan Wigs. Um, songs earlier we played, one was called Birdland. And... Uh, Another one was called Oriole. They're, they're good stuff. Okay. So here's another positive article. How prisoners organized to elect a just DA in Philly. And this was written by Carrie Shakabuna Marshall and John Bergen, and it came out on November 8th. And this is from the website wagingnonviolence.org. 
Tuesday's general election in Philadelphia saw a former civil rights attorney running on an anti-incarceration platform elected district attorney to the country's fifth largest city. Larry Krasner, who defended Black Lives Matter activists and indicted police officers while in private practice, promised sweeping reforms and Philadelphia voters responded. In a city where registered Democrats outnumber Republicans seven to one, the fact that Krasner won might seem unsurprising. However, back in May, when the Democratic Party was in full swing, Krasner wasn't the party favorite. Most other candidates, like Tariq El-Shabazz, were considered favorites because they towed a more moderate line and touted their experience as prosecutors. Then, during the general election, he was faced with pressure to moderate his proposals, and the battle continued to make sure that a message of systemic reform, systematic reform was front and center in the race. In order to shift the race to the left and hold Krasner accountable as he prepares to take office, a broad coalition of progressive groups put aside their differences. Wow, putting aside their differences. Can the left do that? Can we do that? That would be amazing. To focus on winning... The leaders of this alliance are the people most impacted by the city's justice system, including prisoners in Pennsylvania state prisons. Their efforts, which helped create the conditions for Krasner's victory, are part of a long history of Pennsylvania's incarcerated citizens changing public discourse. 20 years ago, radical black prisoners in the state correctional institution Green in the state correctional institution Green, a supermax prison in rural southwest Pennsylvania, started the Human Rights Coalition, or HRC, a radical new model of advocacy for human rights and criminal justice reform. Distinguishing itself from the old paternal liberal model, which put professional quote-unquote advocates in charge of decision-making, prisoners voted on all major decisions. This model built on the legacy of the National Prisoners' Rights Movement, established by George Jackson in California, and represented a historically significant shift in ideals, organization, and actions during the age of Bill Clinton's three strikes law and reign of of Philadelphia District Attorney Lynn Abraham, also known as America's Deadliest DA. Over the past two decades, the HRC has sown the seeds of criminal justice reform in the city of uh, Philadelphia and throughout the state of Pennsylvania. The HRC has also inspired the formation of several other prisoners' uh, human rights organizations in Philadelphia. Prisoners who are leaders in HRC join the advisory boards of local and national organizations, such as the American Friends Service Committee, Decarcerate PA, Decarcerate PA, Families and Communities United, and Reconstruction Inc. They then encourage their family members and loved ones to join community organizations as rank-and-file members to ensure their voices were heard. Prisoners at State Correctional Institution Greaterford, in particular, organized a political action campaign in Philadelphia that saw their families and communities influence the 2015 Pennsylvania Supreme Court judicial elections, resulting in a clean sweep of Democratic justices being elected to the state's Supreme Court. Um, earlier this year, the community organization's spokespersons were able to contact the candidates and explain that SCI Greaterford prison prisoners are 5,000 in number and have an average of five family members who will vote for the candidate of their choice. That means a potential 25,000 strong voting block. That number of potential voters compelled El Shabazz to campaign at SCI Greaterford on four occasions. Krasner also scheduled a campaign event at SCI Greaterford, but prison officials canceled the event, claiming they had not been given enough notice. 
After the primary, Greaterford prisoners were able to reschedule Krasner's visit. Speaking to several hundred prisoners, he unequivocally adopted their proposed criminal justice reform agenda. As a result, according to leaders of organizations in the prison, Krasner earned the overwhelming support of the incarcerated men at SCI Greaterford. His impeccable record and reputation of being a civil rights attorney for the people of Philadelphia also made him the candidate of choice for multiple prisoners' organizations, such as Right to Redemption, an organizing group focusing on ending life without parole sentencing, or what they call death by incarceration, the Latin American Cultural Exchange Organization, representing Latino lifers, and the Gray Panthers, representing elderly prisoners. That being said, support for Krasner wasn't universal. El Shabazz received the endorsement of Gretaford's NAACP group. That wasn't enough, however, to overcome his ambiguous stance on the prisoner's criminal justice reform agenda or his tainted reputation as a former criminal defense attorney and deputy district attorney. After discussing which candidate would best represent the collective interests of prisoners and their communities and society, Greaterford prisoners reached a general consensus that Krasner would be their candidate of choice. Prisoners supported Krasner's candidacy with a robust political action campaign of voter education, voter registration, political forums, and get-out-the-vote drives directed towards their families, loved ones, friends, and returned citizens. So there's a bit more on this article, and uh, I recommend that folks check it out. Again, you can check it out at wagingnonviolence.org for that article. You can also look at our Facebook page, which we post news articles on, and that's facebook.com slash weeklyrev. So we're going to wrap up here. It's almost 2 o'clock. Coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective with Diamond Dave and Global Val, and many talented musicians and poets and folks coming in to share their words with you. Thank you so much to listening to the Weekly Review. We'll be back next Friday. You can also check... Uh, Check us out, uh, Heterotopia, this Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. here on Mutiny Radio. Uh, So stay tuned.
gift joy gadget.